this was just a, a whimsical idea, um, the kind of idea that when you're just talking about what's the thing you want to do next, um, what's the thing you want to do when you retire, what's the thing that you really burns inside of you, uh, passion-wise, and it was just another creative outlet. Welcome back to Creative How, the podcast for curious creatives. Today we've got Jamie Winden, founder of Line Distilling, and wow, this is probably the most fun we've had on a podcast so far. Her energy and passion comes through immediately, and it's all about building a small business, making some great rum, and bringing distilling back to Maryland. So stay tuned for a great episode. Sean, I'm not going to pull any punches here. I love rum, and I'm not embarrassed to say that, and so I couldn't be more excited to be here. Be here with Jamie Winden, um, and we took a nice drive to St. Michael's, a beautiful, beautiful part of Maryland, and now we're in this amazing distillery, and we're about to have some fun. Jamie, welcome. Thanks for I'm having me. I'm so excited. You were literally one of the top people, and when we started setting out to do this thing, you were at the top of the list, not because we love alcohol, but also because <laughs> we love alcohol, but we, we really believe in what you were trying to do here, and, and you know, the the history and the reverence of just distilling in Maryland mm. and you, you being at the forefront of that uh, was it just an interesting story we wanted to tell. And obviously there being a lot of creativity in distilling, mm -hmm. that is another thing we want to bring to our audience, just exposing all these different types of creativity. So let's talk about that. Fantastic. So uh, did we say welcome? Yes. Okay, good. I feel welcomed. Good. So before we get into line distilling, we want to hear a little bit about, um, a lot about your background and, um, you know, you could start with your childhood, but whatever, but you've got such an awesome background and you've been so many places in the world and lived many places in the world. So the influences that surely must have um, made you what you are today are interesting. So let's, let's get started from the beginning. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I had a very, I think I had a very normal, uh, upbringing. I lived in the suburbs of Maryland. I went to Catholic school my whole life. I did everything exactly as I should. I don't think I took many risks. I was very happy with that. Um, so it made sense that as soon as I graduated college, I just set loose. Um, I, it seemed like I was living in a different city or different country every nine months or so, uh, ever since I graduated. And I, I just really like learning. I've always appreciated any experience where I can go and I can learn and I can see something for myself. I, I've just always wanted that. And because maybe I didn't do so much traveling as a child, you know, my family, we, we were a very close family. So we didn't really go outside of the country or do any adventures like that. It just made sense. As soon as I was 21, I was just off. Um, so right before moving back to Maryland, uh, I had spent two years overseas in Kenya. Um, so before having a booze factory as my, as my day job, I was a documentary photographer and that's what took me to so many places because people often say, well, wait, what were you doing there? Um, but there's nothing like a camera to gain you entry into some really amazing places and really amazing stories. Uh, did the photography, um, angle come before you went to Kenya or was that the reason you went or that did you discover actually, it there? No, that was the reason I went. I was a photographer for uh, just over about 10 years. I started my photography career in DC. Um, so I come back to the East coast after being a writer and photographer and traveling uh, across the country and down in central America. I also lived in London for a little bit. I just kind of went wherever seemed interesting. And when you're writing stories, you can pretty much go anywhere. And then when I came back to DC is when my photography career really started. I started shooting 
politics, uh, which I didn't like at all. Uh, it wasn't fun. It What's wasn't exciting. Like? Oh my gosh. Nothing like <laughs> running through the Senate building and chasing someone down right. that doesn't want their photo taken. Uh, <laughs> but what was good is I kind of always, every, every, uh, it, time I'm in a different industry, I usually find the alt spot that nobody else really wants to be doing. So when I was working for a political newspaper shooting politics and I mentioned, Hey, I have a background in food and booze. Why don't you send me to the restaurant openings that nobody else wants to cover? Cause they don't consider that the serious work of the day. Um, that's what I became known for. So I started photographing things like that. So go back just a step before that. <laughs> and how did you actually get into writing? And shooting. Okay, so hey, we're gonna go writing. Well, okay, that's, that seems like a homework okay. play. All right, I like right, to hear let's, that. Let's see the writer. I know it's hard. It's hard for me because it's such a jagged, crazy history, and I, you know, at the risk of spending, you know, the next eight hours trying to understand what I did every nine months for the past thirty-eight years. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I went to school in Baltimore. I went to a small liberal arts college and studied all things liberal arts related, like philosophy and religion and journalism. And I became the editor of my school newspaper and I loved it. And I thought very firmly when I graduated that I wanted to be a journalist. Um, but then I realized I didn't want to stay in Baltimore and work for a paper. I wanted to move to California on a whim. So I did that and developed writing and traveling and became a bit of a travel writer, uh, while traveling, I decided that photography was really the ticket. And I didn't, I wasn't trained in photography, but I was traveling to some amazing places and you can't help but take amazing photos when you're in places like the Galapagos and Machu Picchu. And so I started posting photos on my website where I was just kind of keeping a very loose travel blog for family and friends and really got great responses. So when I came back to the States, I kind of fell into <coughs> a, a photography career. I got a job working at a newspaper. And that's when I started shooting a little politics, kind of didn't like that. I'll try anything once when it comes mm -hmm. to art. I mean, there was a time in my life when I blew glass and then there was a time when, you know, I'm trying to paint and that, you know, I, I just enjoy the experience, even if I'm not going to be good at it. And so I wasn't sure that photography was going to be a career, but it turned out, um, it turned out I was, I was pretty good at it and it worked. So I was a photographer in DC for a couple of years doing uh, different documentary work, working with organizations like Children's National Medical Center and Catholic Charities and really documenting people doing amazing things is always what I've loved uh, and learning all the time. But uh, booze and food have always been my passion. So I was bartending um, the whole time and working in different restaurants and different bars and traveling. And whenever I travel, pictures, stories, eating, drinking, those are, those are the four things that I enjoy the most. So the photography kind of developed. It took me to Kenya. Uh, it took me to India. It took me all over. And most recently, before coming back to the States, I was, I was based in Kenya for about two years. Hmm. Um, and yeah, there's just great culture and great food and great drink. And, you know, pretty much every country in the world has a sugarcane spirit. So hence the love affair with, you know, was that, rum. was that always your, your, from the outset rum was the, the preferred liquor? Yeah. For me. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's funny cause now I talk with my college roommates and they're like, Oh, you always had rum. And I don't, I didn't remember that. It wasn't, <laughs> I liked everything, you know, yeah. wine in some moods, beer in <laughs> others, spirits. Um, but I think traveling around the world and 
you know, the moonshine of many countries yeah. is, is a, is a sugar spirit. So and that's interesting. Cause you had that consistency. Like I think people go through phases of tastes yes. in their lives. Like, and I speaking as someone who's just recently discovered, you know, whiskey and, and distilled spirits, like never really. So like to have that history dial for you to dial all the way back and your friends could remember, that's pretty cool. So it was like, it was already kind of destiny a little bit. You know? <laughs> Although I would say that the rum that I was drinking in college is quite different than the rum. Yeah. You know what? I see a Bacardi what, bottle on your, on your shelf or something not like that. <laughs> you know, I think I have to admit that it was Bacardi Limon that had my heart in the nineties. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> so something that uh, I read on your website, it said, Travel gave you a knowledge of an affinity for obscure and rare flavors. Absolutely. So can you talk about that a little bit more? Um, I think that whenever you go somewhere, you're in a different country, especially there's maybe a different type of lime or a different seasoning or something they're doing that's unique that really, not only is it maybe an interesting indigenous ingredient, but the whole experience of where you are changes your palate. You know, you could drink the same bottle of rum uh, at home alone in a quiet room out at a bar that's bustling or outside with the ocean and everything around you. And your, your experience is different. So I think that a sense of place and also craving and, and, and seeking out those different flavors. I, I, I'm not the type of person who travels and misses, you know, American food. You know, all I want to do is eat things that are different and unique. And, uh, and that's always, I think, expressed in, in the cocktails as well, even if they're very simple, um, mixed drinks, you know, fresh juice and, and spirits and things like that. So yeah, I think Kenya gave me a huge appreciation for different flavors. Uh, there was this uh, particular type of lime that we had lived on an Island called Lamu and it was almost like a spicy lime. Like there was a peppery heat to it and to cut that in half and squeeze that into a glass of rum is a really cool experience. So always seeking that out and, and, and kind of mixing all of those flavors together. Yeah. I think that's where I really opened my palate because I wasn't exposed to anything like that before leaving the country. Hmm. Um, any wild, you know, flavors. So flash forward to now. Yeah. Well, not now, but I guess we're, we're, we're actually starting to develop a sort of an idea here for you, right? Like you're, you're saying that maybe I can be a manufacturer of this thing. Like how, where did this idea sort of really take root? And when did you actually get the courage to say, this is what I'm doing? So I think I have a bit of a different, it, it's funny because I can look back on my life and I can see that this makes sense. There's, there's a path to having a distillery and to being someone who's taking care of people and making spirits and having that whole hospitality, everything flows together. But this was not a, this was not a plan. This was not a normal thing that happened. I moved back from Kenya, uh, having firmly decided to stay in Kenya for the rest of my life until, you know, things got a little dicey on the coast with the mm. Somali yeah. kind of unstable situation, came back to the States kind of to regroup and um, met my co-founder. And this was just a, a whimsical idea. Um, the kind of idea that when you're just talking about what's the thing you want to do next? Um, what's the thing you want to do when you retire? What's the thing that you really burns inside of you? Uh, passion wise. And it was just another creative outlet. So I, I didn't look at this as a business that was going to bring together a lot of my skill sets. Uh, it just seemed like a fun project, another project, not that different than blowing glass in uh, Hyattsville, Maryland, mm -hmm. <laughs> just Great. starting, starting a little tiny rum distillery. And I think that's the hard thing is you hear distillery and you think this magnificent operation and you think large investment and, and people involved and big teams and years and years of planning. 
And that was exactly the opposite of, of what lie and distilling started <laughs> That's exactly as. what I think of distilling. Well, and you know, I have to say, I, I remember turning to my co-founder and saying, how the heck are we going to start a distillery? We don't have those yeah. kind of means. And the first thing we did was go down to Kentucky <laughs> and stay far away from the big distilleries. We went to the small distilleries that were run by one or two people that were really, really tiny, making really, you know, nano amounts of, of spirits. And that seemed to make sense. And now the only thing I can liken it to in this environment is we were the food truck of distilling when we opened. We we weren't mobile, but we we had no, nothing. We made 30 bottles of rum a week, sold it and made more. I mean, it was wow. infinitely small. So it was, it felt more like a project than a business, um, but albeit a project that we were really excited about. What, what would explain to the audience, like the, the sense of, I don't know, risk or stress at the actual turnkey moment of we're oh, doing this, zero. we're doing it. Zero, not when we started, wow. we, we invested $15,000 into equipment and opened the door. And it, that was the least risk I've ever taken. Wow. Packing up my bags and moving across the world to Kenya was risky, wow. but, but exciting. Okay. This was probably one of the most normal things I think I've ever done. Especially if you ask my family, they're like, Jamie's living in a small town in America, opening the door of a business every day, <laughs> selling and making something and going home at night. That's so normal. Um, we love it. <laughs> yes. And you know, the risk is now, now five years in is where I feel the stress and the risk and the yeah. responsibility for people that work here. Um, if things hadn't worked out, if people didn't like the rum that we made, you know, we would have moved on to something else. It wasn't, it wasn't a lot of risk going in. It was signing a year lease and just kind of see what happens. Um, and that's why I kind of liken it to that really small venture where we just, we learned as we went, we, we weren't going to sink a bunch of money into something we weren't sure people were going to want. Uh, I'm very organic about what I do. I, I don't want to sell anything to anybody. I don't want to convince anyone of anything. Don't get me wrong. I want to sell you your new favorite bottle of rum and make sure that for the rest of your life, that's what you love and you share it with people. But it has to be natural. In fact, for the entire first year, we only sold spirits here and you had to try them and meet us before you bought them. So I knew that you would be happy. You weren't huh. just going to see a bottle on a shelf, Love think it. it was pretty or like the story that goes against everything I believe in. See, I think I want to skip ahead a little bit because you, what you just said, and before we started recording, you were talking about some of your thoughts on being a brand. Mm -hmm. And I won't say what those were, you can do that. But what you just said is a brand like that. That's amazingly organic and making people meet you and try the stuff before they buy it is very unusual, but it's like, it's really a part of the story. So can you share some thoughts on why you did that and then share maybe some thoughts on what a brand is to you? Well, two things. One, it was necessity. I cannot overestimate or overexpress how small we were. We would buy five gallons of molasses, turn it into 30 bottles of rum, sell the rum here, close the doors and do it all again. Use that money to buy the next order of molasses. I mean, that's tiny. That's, you're not making it for everybody. You're making it for 30 people once a week in the middle of nowhere here on the Eastern shore. We opened in December. So we talked about this being a seasonal town. Mm -hmm. St. Michael's is very bustling, but we have less than a thousand full-time residents. We're an hour and a half from BWI or DC or anything kind of, you know, metropolitan. And so this is a small town. Um, it attracts a lot of people, but in December, January, I don't think we thought we would sell anything to anyone. I thought we would open the doors and have a few months to make rum and stock rum up for the summer season. And it just didn't, it didn't go like that. And so we found ourselves in a true scarcity for an entire year where we just couldn't keep up. 
with the demand that was coming in because it was just two people and we were making everything from scratch. And that was okay because again, we didn't have any investors to please or any projections to meet. We were just making it, learning, having fun. Um, and my co-founder uh, worked at a small distillery previously. So he had experience. So it's not like we were even, you know, a lot of people open up distilleries or breweries or anything in their kind of testing in that first year, right out the gate, we know exactly what we were doing. Mm. Um, and it was, it was really a one person manufacturing and one person selling it up here. You see, we have this building, it's very, it's not huge, it's about 6,000 square feet, but you can't be up front and back at the same time. Right, so we right. have walkie talkies on the front door while I would right. be bottling and people would come by. Um, so it was necessity that people had to come here. We were going to sell every bottle and we were going to sell every bottle in our space. Um, so we're really small. I mean, we got, we got a lot of recognition because we were doing something that hadn't been done in so long, but it wasn't like bars and restaurants were clamoring to get this right, weird little right. ramen of St. Michael's. But <laughs> so, it's cool. You said yeah. you, you, you have had a knack over the course of your life identifying where an opportunity is. Yes. And maybe that's what I'm good at. I'm good at when everyone's going in one direction, yeah. I'm very interested in what's happening in the other and not in the most extreme sense, but just a little twist, just a little twist, right. you Make know, it unique. And, yeah, because what am I good at? And, you know, I think the better, you know, yourself and what you like doing and what you truly enjoy, then you're going to be good at it. Um, I shouldn't have been a writer because writing wasn't my, my strong suit going into college. I was like a calculus nerd and I really enjoyed math, but I ended up studying journalism because I enjoyed it and photography. I wasn't classically trained in any way, mm -hmm. but you know, you, if you, if you enjoy something, you're going to work really hard. You're actually going to work pretty much harder than anybody else because you have to prove something to yourself that you're worthy of doing it. Um, sounds like good podcast advice, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> Just work harder. Um, so yeah. So, it, you know, being a rum distillery is probably the best thing we could have set out to be in my opinion. We knew we wanted to make spirits. We knew that Maryland had a long history of making spirits. Uh, in fact, Maryland, you know, a lot of people refer to it as one of, you know, the cradles of distilling when it comes to Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia. Yeah. This is where it all started. But unfortunately, Prohibition kind of retold and rewrote a bit of our history. And afterwards, distilling just never rebounded to its, its you know, original glory in the state. And in the 70s, the very last distilleries, you know, closed in Maryland. Mm -hmm. So you had uh, 40 to 50 years of no one knowing that Maryland was a distilling state. So to be fair, I didn't really know that. When we started the distillery here in St. Michael's, um, there's a brewery and a winery just a few yards from us. There's a working boatyard in town. There's watermen who are working the water. There's farmers. People are making things. No one was making spirits in St. Michael's. So we didn't even really look to the state. We looked to what was missing here. It would make mm -hmm. sense to put a distillery in St. Michael's, especially in this neat little booze trifecta. We're all in this old former flour mill. And so then you look around and you say, well, who else is doing it? No one's making rum in Maryland. Wow. So that was amazing to us. We couldn't believe that. That's my question. What did it, what came first? Did the idea for rum or the idea to position it here in St. Michael's? Oh, definitely here. It was, it was a time and place. Um, okay. I had just moved here. My, um, my co-founder Ben had just moved here and we really liked this area mm -hmm. and being such a small town, there's not a lot, you know, of, of, there are some job opportunities. There's a the big hospitality town, but there mm -hmm. wasn't really a lot to do that would keep sure. us here. And so it just made sense. Hey, why not put a distillery here? That would be great. Then you start looking around the state and you go, no one's making 
spirits. No one's making rum or whiskey or anything. And then you start researching why this used to be a huge thing. So then we really became obsessed with the history of Maryland distilling, what was made here. Obviously rye whiskey was, um, was made in great volume and great quality in Maryland. But when we had to sit down and because we were so small and we knew we had to really focus, what was the spirit we wanted to launch with? It just came down to rum very clearly. Um, rum is often overlooked as America's native spirit. It was the first spirit Mm -hmm. distilled in this country in any large quantity. It has the least rules and regulations. And so to me, it embodies the American spirit. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a, you know, true mix of all these different styles. You can pull a dozen rums off the shelf and they're all wildly different because they all conform to different recipes and styles. And that just made a lot of sense. So we knew we could make a spirit that had some historical significance not only to being made in the country, but to being, you know, run by watermen, you know, rum runners up and down the yeah. Chesapeake during Prohibition. But also we're right here on the bay. The, and the context so, could not be better. Exactly. I mean, you guys. You know, it made so much know. sense. The only thing that didn't make sense was that there's no sugar cane grown in Maryland. So a lot of people, when they yeah. started distillery, they looked to a, a local, local ingredient. Yeah. Exactly. But that didn't bother me because one, I look at the entire country as fodder for our, our product because we are making an American rum. Yes, Mm -hmm. we're doing it in Maryland. Um, and there's no, no real Maryland style of rum per se, but we wanted to help define American rum because there's just not a lot of American rum out there. When we started six years ago, there were probably less than a dozen true American rum distilleries and only three or four that I thought were worthy of admiration. Um, and a very different style than people would expect. Most people hear rum and they think, old Caribbean spirits. And here we are a brand new day one American rum distillery putting out something very unique. So that was, that was really interesting to me. Um, also I think that, uh, the sailing culture and the fact that, you know, right around here, rum is, is the drink of choice in a, in a, in a town like this, it's right on the water. So you you cross that threshold of the, you know, the, the border out there and you are, you're like, I'm, I think I'm on vacation. I'm not on vacation. This town messes with you a little bit and you're like, I, I want to relax the hell out of <laughs> we, myself right yeah, now. Exactly, we exactly. pulled in and it was sort of dusk and it was getting dark and we took a wrong turn and we were literally behind this, the distillery and some other buildings. And Sean and I looked at each other and we're like, I think we might be pirates. So it's like, <laughs> it's a weird pirates. place. It's cute, right? And it's awesome. Yeah. Um, so well, and the water's everywhere. People often mistakenly think St. Michael's is an island because you cross the yeah. Bay Bridge to get here. And then you cross a little bridge about a few miles outside of town and two blocks one way and two blocks the other way is water, but um, it actually doesn't become an island for another 15 miles down, but it's tiny. I mean, we're a tiny little yeah. little area here. Well, yeah. it seems like it fits in too, because what we could tell you know, in the dark or whatever, there <laughs> there are a lot of makers yes. around here and you guys slot really nicely in. And do you allow for a lot of experimentation? Are you constantly thinking about recipes and again, creating that new twist. Oh yeah. You can't help it. Even when you think you don't want another, you know, new project, something comes along. I mean, right when you guys came in today, they were just finish finishing bottling our new batch of blackberry infused rum. And I never had any desire to do a blackberry rum, but, uh, a few months ago, farmers came to us and said, we have locally grown blackberries. We have an excess of them. Could you do anything with them? And I was like, no, but we'll take them. You know, so then we're infusing them into the rum, like playing around with that. And we're all about doing things really naturally. Um, So it's interesting because I think 
most people think of rum and they think of these super intense, you know, extracted flavors and, you know, candied coconut rum and bright red rum drinks. And that's so the antithesis of what we do. So it's interesting to look at our bar now. And we were for two years, we had white rum and we had dark rum. And every once in a while, we had a few bottles of rum that came out of a barrel, uh, our sailor's reserve, but we only had like three, five gallon barrels. So it would only be like 15 bottles a batch. It was ridiculous. Um, so now to have nine or 11, you know, at any given time, 11 varieties or nine different rums on the bar right now, three of which are rum liqueur infusions. That's something that I never imagined. I mean, we were just going to make rum, straight rum, serious rum. Uh, but then we learned we could be serious and have a little bit of, of fun and experimentation as well. But that also comes with employees. Um, having a team of people with ideas, that's the number one way to really jumpstart it. And they get excited and they want to try something and they have their favorite flavor. And how can I say no? That's, that's wonderful. That's what we're all about. So yeah. How many employees do you have right now? Oh my gosh, so many that I lose count. Um, we have seven full-time employees and I have uh, three part-time employees at the moment. And we have some seasonal help in the summer. We get really busy here in the tasting room. Mm. But right now we are we are a team of 12 at Lion Distilling at the moment. It's a healthy team. Yeah, it really is. It's a, it looked bustling back there. Everybody <laughs> looks like they're having a good time, but definitely hard at work. Yeah, we try. I mean, everyone, I think everyone's very proud of what we do here. Um, no one who works here uh, had ever worked in a distillery before. So they came with very unique experience. One, everyone loves our rum. And so that's the number one qualification to work at Lion Distilling is that you love the rum and that, you know, you're, you're just, you believe in what we do. And so I see every skill is transferable. So we have ex, an ex chef, we have an ex engineer, we have people that, a lot of people that worked in bars and restaurants. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think everyone kind of falls into a different role, but most people here do a little bit of everything. So it might be bottling a rum one day, starting a rum fermentation another, um, you know, working together. I mean, everyone kind of falls into their specific role, either on the distilling floor or more on the sales side. But um, yeah, every, everyone has a hand in everything we do, which is nice. It seems like you're developing a culture. And, you know, honestly, walking back in the back and hearing loud music was like, I don't know, it's just what I picture people mm -hmm. doing when they're distilling. Um, but are you conscious of that? You know, I am now. And, and so, you know, to go over the five years and starting a project with one other person that feels very, again, just like a project. It just felt like something, it didn't feel like very risky. It just felt fun. And we were going to learn something and we're going to see where it took us. And I think after the first year, we were both like, wow, this is, this is a thing. People really like it. A couple other distilleries opened in that first year. So it seemed like it made more sense. Um, people weren't coming and going, what's a distillery? What do you do here? They were starting to get it. And we really surfed this beginning wave of, of craft distilling growth. If you look at our timeline, when we filed for our permits in the year before we opened, there were less than 150 craft distilleries in the country. By the time we opened, there were a few hundred and now there's 2000. Wow. So that's in five years. I mean, that's such a short time period. So it really skyrocketed. So you're <laughs> the president of the Maryland Distillers Guild. I am. Yeah. So I think that that's pretty amazing, especially given how you just mentioned how um, the businesses are skyrocketing in terms of number across the country. But what I'm wondering is that's obviously an environment where you can talk to other people who have similar interests. Mm -hmm. And do you also learn from them or is it something that's competitive? How, how is that? Uh, how does that work at Guild? So we started the Guild. Um, gosh, a couple years ago now, three or, three or four years ago. And 
a gentleman had come to us. Uh, his name's Kevin Addicts. He's awesome. He's the director of our guild. He's also the director of the wineries association and the breweries. So he knew that the industry was coming. And so he came to myself and two or three other distilleries that had just opened. And he kind of said, you guys interested in starting a guild? And I said, well, what would that mean? He said, well, it's a way to get everybody together and we can, you know, combine resources and we can, you know, liaison with the state and we can do some legislation. I was like, oh, thank God. Yes. Because what happened was we opened and within those first couple months, half, about half of the distilleries that exist in Maryland right now, and there's over 20, um, came here and they visited and they said, hi, my name is, you know, da, da, da. And we want to do this. And we've been working on a business plan for five years. And can you give us some advice or can you answer our questions or how did you fill out this application? And I loved helping them because there was really hardly anyone to help us when we got started. We found a distillery, the closest distillery to us was in DC that was actually doing everything the way we were going to do it from scratch by hand. Um, that's new Columbia distillers, awesome guys. And they were super generous with their time and energy, not on how to distill. We knew how to do that, but on the logistics. Okay. What did you, we deal with the federal government. Then we deal with the state governments and there's all these tricks and turns. And because distilleries hadn't opened regularly, it was just rusty. Nobody really knew how to get things done. Mm -hmm. There was no clear path to opening. So I started fielding all these questions because I love helping people. I felt like I was paying it forward from the help that I got from the guys in DC. And when Kevin said, Hey, if we start a guild, this would be like a formal place. I was like, this is great. Cause I was starting to get overwhelmed. I was answering so many emails and spending so much time answering people's questions. And I was trying to run this business that was in its first right. and second year. So we started the guild, uh, at the time, I believe there were four or five operating distilleries, but we had 11 people represented because there were a lot that were just about to take off um, and get started. So we, we formed the guild and we decided our mission would be to mainly legislate for friendlier business environment uh, for distillers in Maryland, more opportunities to sell and sell easier and connect with your customers. But we would also work together, um, something I firmly believe in, uh, in every area of my life and every job I've ever had or every industry is collaboration over competition, especially when you're a small industry. It's all of the Maryland distillers and all of the small U.S. distilleries against all the really big international brands and not really against, but in, you know, um, as a new option. You know, if, yep. if all you've ever known is a giant brand of rum, like maybe Captain Morgan's and you like it, great. But if you don't like it and you think that's all rum is, you're very you're not very inclined to go try a random rum from a small distillery. And so if we can all be presenting really good products and learning from each other and sharing opportunities and costs on education and seminars, then it, it, the whole industry is going to thrive. I don't remember how they tricked me into being president the first time, <laughs> but we just had another election and I managed to be convinced to run again. And I really enjoy being president of the guild because it, it gives me a voice on a different level because I really believe in, in small scale distilling. And I really believe in small scale manufacturing. And when I'm not busy telling people all about Lion Rum, I'm really busy telling them about the other fabulous distilleries in Maryland and why they should go visit them and have an amazing experience because we're all so different. Um, That's probably how they tricked you. Yeah, I think so. I you think so. The They're like, Hey, she's going to yeah, help. You, I do believe in it. And I love you it. You deliver that better than anybody. <laughs> well, and and, and yeah. that's, that's a point. And I think um, not to be missed is that you know, I want to talk a little bit about Lion's point of differentiation. You've yes. touched on a little bit, you yeah. know, all natural ingredients and, and the hybrid of molasses and sugarcane. But 
what we really want to talk about is the brand differentiation and the story. And I think one of the components maybe you're not taking credit for is you. You're the face of this brand. And it's funny, we talk all the time as we get deeper and deeper in these investigations with with creative folks, uh, common threads are bubbling up, Mm -hmm. right? And one of them uh, is that, you know, for a brand to be successful, like out the gate as an entrepreneur, it does need to be attached to a person or, you know, and people need to feel the human behind the brand. So I think you're doing that right. But then the flip side of that is, and where I'll nerd out is the design of things. So your logo, your bottle designs, like I I love all of it. And so I want to kind of get into that Mm -hmm. a little bit, like just the genesis of that stuff. Can you talk to me, you know, even when it was just two bottles and how, you know, who designed it, what's your philosophy and it's super clean, but you do have like the differentiating little flags and, and some of the lines have a little bit of a different mystique and aesthetic than the others go into that. And I know that was a lot. Yeah, yeah, no, but I get it. Well, because they're probably the most important person that doesn't get enough credit because he's not here is Eric Cass, who is our amazing designer. He's in Indianapolis. And I had worked with Eric uh, previously for my photography business and he had branded that for me. And I do have a bit of a problem. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs do, we want to do everything. And a lot of times we have to do everything. Um, but we should definitely hire other professionals to do the things that we are not you know, well-versed in, and I am not a designer. I am a photographer and I appreciate aesthetics, but I can't design anything. If you were going to tell me you designed the bottles, I was going to fall off the chair. I know, right? Wasn't like, that cool? I took the pictures, no, I, I opened the thing, we I found, the bottles. We, we found the bottle. So the bottle is actually a stock bottle. So we didn't have to design it. We just fell in love with the shape sure. of our original bottle. And then we called Eric and said, Hey, we want to start a rum brand. This is the bottle we like. We don't really know anything about what we want. Um, we don't even think we're going to name the company. We're just going to call it lion distilling because Ben Lyon's going to make rum and Jamie Wyndon's going to sell it. And you know, we had all these discussions, but what should we name the distillery? We come up with a really fancy, cool, edgy name. That's not my, that's not my area. Our creativity was going into making the product. So we went with, went with Lion Distilling. Felt like it was a very um, good name for the distillery. And we actually, I remember saying, well, when we make different rums, we'll give them different names. Every rum will have a name. Well, that never happened. Um, (laughs) Because, and I also used to say things like, we're never going to sell this in liquor stores. We're only going to sell it here. It's just going to be one type of rum, white rum, and that's what we're going to do. And, you know, just never say never when you're starting a business Jed, because everything's going to change. Say, Jed used to say he wasn't going to wear headphones. <laughs> and that, that lasted that one was, episode. Was wrong. So, right. you know, you can be wrong. It's yes. cool. And it's good, it's, to be, it's good to be convicted and have ideas that you stick with, but you also have to be willing to change your mind constantly yeah. and be open to things. So I love the crest. Yeah. Oh, so, that, so cool. yeah, it really is cool. That's actually a good story too, because I did love that hoodie. I didn't I'm like, like it. Oh, geez. Are we selling that anyway? Right. Stuff, huh? So I, no, uh, no, no, buy the hoodie. <laughs> well, basically we wanted, we wanted a logo that we just thought was cool looking, yeah. right? Again, this was for us. We did not start a business to make rum for other people. We started a business because we wanted to make rum and right. we wanted to drink it. And we thought if we make really good rum that we like and no one buys it, at least we'll have rum forever. Uh, and when you're making 30 bottles a week, that's not forever. That's really not a lot of rum, <laughs> especially with our friends and family. <laughs> so uh, Eric took a stab at doing some design and making a logo and I have to say, uh, the first time he came back with the logo, I I said no. I balked at it. With that logo? Yeah. Oh. I said, an anchor? We're on the shore. Everybody has an anchor. A heart? Seriously? That's so whimsical. And I'm a woman and I don't want to have a heart on my brand. And, you know, yada, 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 yada. And Eric came back and did exactly what every good professional 
needs to do. He was absolutely committed to this. He believed in it. And he told me exactly why I was wrong. He said, Jamie, you might think an anchor is commonplace on the Eastern shore, but I'm in Indianapolis. And when I see your brand, I need to know where you're rooted, where you're anchored, if you will. He said, you look at that heart. All I see is passion. These are two people that are so passionate about what they're doing that must be included. Um, there's two arrows that go through the heart. And he was like, this is very directional. This is the growth and these are the places and, and what you're going to reach. And then there's a little bit of, you know, grain that comes in. Cause we did start mashing whiskey, you know, from day one as well, along with the rum. And so it just felt like it embodied everything about who we were. And it felt like a family crest. And I was completely convinced after he said those things, it didn't take anything else. I said, fine, you're right. You're smarter than I am and you're brilliant. And it is hands down the best decision that we ever made. And I, I laugh now because I love our logos so much, but I fought it. I was like, maybe it should just be a still or like, you know, all these things. And he would design, he would do everything I asked and it just wouldn't look right. Like, and this is what well, felt right. The thing I love about it and allow me my graphic design nerd out on it <laughs> um, is that it's a timeless, Yeah. right? And it's also fashion forward and dare I say on trend, but you know, I, I sometimes view that as negative and positive, but as I can see on your hoodie, that's something that people will wear oh, yeah. and not feel like they're wearing a Jim Beam hoodie. Well, you right? know, to the point where like, I never put our name on anything for the first year. Yeah. I only put the mark on it and we have a version of the mark that just has the LD for lion distilling. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it could, it could just be some great line of, of new yeah, kind of trend. Exactly. You know, it felt very, wear, right? I've never worn any brand of anything. Yeah. I would like something and it had a brand or name on it. Yeah. They felt like I'm not someone's advertisement, but in the second year, people really started to love us and they started demanding things with the name lion on them. So now we have a ton of merchandise that says oh. the words lion distilling because people wanted that. And that was surprised me. I didn't think anybody wanted our, the name of our business on their body, but they really, they really did. And I do too. I mean, when I go out, I want people to see the back of my sweatshirt and it says lion distilling because, you know, I'm super proud of, of what we do here, but uh, those are advocates now. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to go and espouse the gospel of, but that was such a, distilling. that was such a learning lesson for me. I mean, I was so anti, you guys will laugh. I mean, I didn't want to sell t-shirts. I didn't want to sell anything. We started selling hats because <laughs> my business partner wore hats. So he wanted a hat for himself. Uh -huh. We sold hoodies because I wanted to wear a hoodie. So we had like weird pieces of merchandise right. because those are things we wanted. And then if other people wanted to buy them, okay, we'll order a few more. Um, and now we are so merchandised out, thanks to my sister who does all of our all of our tasting room merchandise. Yeah, and we have fun with shout it. Shout out. Sister's name is? My give her sister's name shout is Jessie and she's fantastic. Jessie, right. yes. Good job, Jessie. Jessie. Jessie tells me exactly what I should be doing. And I, I, I do listen to her now, which is important. You know, I was very reticent in the beginning because you think you know everything. Um, but you realize once you start listening to other people, uh, especially people that care about your brand, your company, and and you, those are the best people to listen to, take, yeah. take their advice. Um, so yeah, so the label just kind of came about and it was one product. That's all we were designing was for yeah. white rum. That's all we planned on making. And then as you mentioned, kind of the, I think it's called like color block strips or there's, mm -hmm. there's a, there's a name for it in design where you just change one color element. And so plate. It, Maybe, right? So with the dark rum and the white rum, it's the same color. It's turquoise with the mm -hmm. Sailor's Reserve. It's dark blue. When mm -hmm. we do our rye whiskey, it's red. Mm -hmm. um, and my designer hated that. He wanted to design a different bottle for each product. He thought everything should have its own look, but uh, we were poor and there was no way that yeah. I could afford that yeah. because we did hire a very, very talented designer. So I said, no, can't you just change the color? And won't that take like five minutes and then we can not have to spend a lot of money. And he was kind of like, fine. And so pretty soon we had 
four different rums, five different rums. And if you look at old pictures of our of our bottles, we have like nine bottles. It's all the exact same label with just a different color strip. Yeah. So it started getting out of control. So earlier this year, we rebranded the liqueur line to be very different, which I really was excited about and ready for. And those bottles, it's a different bottle. It's a more evocative label with the actual fruits and ingredients that are in it. And it actually says something on the back because also if you look at our bottles of rum, still the same bottle, same labels on the original rums for five right. years, there is no story on there. It says distilled and bottled at, at Lion Distilling in St. Michael's. That's it. It doesn't say pot distilled from Louisiana cane sugar. Yeah. It doesn't say Jamie, when did it, Ben Lyon started this in 2012. It doesn't, it's not important. Will What's important? I don't know. Um, I think that's becoming important now that we're in these other markets and that I'm not leading. I can't meet everyone. You mm-hmm. know, when we're I noticed that I just got back from Louisiana. We just started selling in Louisiana, which is probably the most rewarding thing that's happened to me because all of our sugarcane comes direct from a mill in Louisiana that we are very connected with. In fact, I took my entire team down last year during the harvest season to harvest sugarcane and to meet the farmers and to meet the people who process it. And it was wonderful and it was so connected and so wow, that knowledge is probably invaluable for them and oh, that's probably the, why they're so motivated exactly back there it was like the coolest field trip we ever you, took you, you know? invested <laughs> in their education you weren't just yeah. like a nine-to-five person you're a valuable oh, no. team i want you to have this knowledge because you represent my brand and that is that is a lot that's yeah, awesome. and it's, it's the knowledge but it's also the the connection right because it's all about the people right the people we work with you know yes the sugar cane we get is phenomenal quality but I wouldn't care as much if it didn't come from the hands of good people. Yeah. I like picking up the phone and calling mm-hmm. them and I like being able to go visit them. And so now to be able to send rum back to Louisiana and to have our rum in bars and restaurants in Baton Rouge, which is 30 miles from where our yeah. sugar cane is grown is super cool. And now I want that on the label. Yeah. Now I want that. So you can't hand deliver anymore. <laughs> no. And I go down and I go when I can, but I can't be everywhere, right. which is a very, right. it's a tragedy. Um, but I was always very reticent of putting anything on my label that was quote unquote going to convince someone to buy something. I wanted mm-hmm. them to know and love it and buy it for what was in there, not for what it looked like. Yes, it has to be pretty and it should be a beautiful bottle to sit on your bar. Um, but I, I, that's why I reel against brand story in, in discussions with my friends, because I feel like a brand story is just a trickery. It's just this, this way of like convincing people that what you're doing is cool and interesting. And most of them are bullshit. It's funny it though, be crazy. because the, there's a major dichotomy and it's, it's interesting because I already like rum and I'm just going to use myself as a consumer yes. here and <clears throat> you've allowed us to taste yours and it's really good. But now hearing all the stuff that you're saying, I love it even more. And that is the brand story, but you're telling it because you're so genuinely passionate about it. You're not trying to sell us anything because we're just doing a podcast. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's that dichotomy that's what? like. But I still people want to know. And, and but it's not a brand story. It's just my story. It's well, just here, life. And here's the other just thing. And we're going down a rabbit hole of conception because <laughs> it's what we do. Yeah. But the way you just delivered it and your 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 just like defiance of putting it on there, like that label, how you would present that, could be written in that tone. And presented like yeah. in the like, you should just want this because of this. But if you really want to know, here's the story. <laughs> like that kind of thing. It would make an amazing tonality, right. I think, that you're you're kind of exuding and, yeah, and yeah. places like you know Burger King. I've done it in the past, and like <laughs> you know, like I don't know, just just having some whimsy and, and talking like a human and talking well, exactly. to that person and having a conversation and versus we were formed and whatever. Yes, and maybe this comes from being a journalist yeah. and from having a true desperate desire for truthfulness Mm -hmm. and openness. And I can see through pitches and positioning and brand stories. I'm just not into it. Yeah, I'm just not into it. But unfortunately, my biggest concern is serving 
the customer. And so mm-hmm. if the customer wants more information, I need to give it to them. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's important to me, when you walk in here, the first thing you see on the board is lion rums are distilled from Louisiana, cane sugar, and molasses, and that they're done in traditional pot stills and small batches. That should be on my label, right? If that's mm-hmm. what I want people to know. And now this rum is being sold in Connecticut and Louisiana and they need to know that. How, how else would they know that? So they're going to dig the anchor in Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They love it. Well, it's funny. People are like, those were our two new states this year. And they're like, why those two? And I said, well, we have a lot of customers that come from Connecticut and a lot of boaters and our sugar comes from Louisiana. And they're like, oh, okay, well it makes a little more sense now, but nothing we do really makes sense. It just, it's whatever feels right. It's whatever, quite frankly, I think we should be doing. Um, and that's how we've grown. We've grown in a really super organic way. And every product that we release comes with intense thought and passion, but not market research, not, well, people like this thing. You know, we got those blackberries. We made that rum. It's a hundred bottles. That's all we have. That was all the blackberries she had. So yeah, now that I've tasted it and it's absolutely remarkable. Do I wish we had 10,000 bottles of it? Yeah, but that's all the blackberries they were. I wasn't going to buy blackberries from the grocery store or from another provider. It was a specific, important relationship and collaboration. So, um, yeah. And, and I've learned about scarcity from living through it. Mm. Now I see that people do this. They do small releases mm-hmm. of things purposely to get people's attention. Oh my gosh, no, we would have sold a lot more rum if we could have. We were just selling everything. Right. That's all we had. Right. You know, people would say, what time are you going to close on Saturday? And I'd say, well, we're closing when the rum sells out. And they're like, Shh, that's ridiculous. Like there's 24 bottles right now. We're probably going to close at 315, you know, when it sells out. Right. So we've always offered complimentary tastings. Uh, we like people to come in and try it. Um, that's important. It's important that they try the rum because it's not what they think it's going to be. So making rum, making rum in a very different style. I mean, our rum is, our rum is very unique and there might be one or two that are a little similar to it now, but when we started, we didn't know anybody that was using molasses and sugarcane in their fermentation, distilling in tiny pot stills, doing like a raw, unfiltered, bright, robust white rum American rum, un- unaged rum. Uh, and so people would say, oh, your rum's really different. Why? I'm like, well, there's like 20 reasons why. And so everything we've done now is just a, a finished version of that mm-hmm. white rum, which enables us to be very nimble. You know, every day we make rum. The stills run seven days a week. Um, we're open 363 days a year. We have to be. Um, the stills were are being cleaned and, and organized for the first time in five years <laughs> the yeah. day you guys come. But they, they look like leaky faucets when they're running. We have five of them now, um, up from the two original, but they're really slow. So we got to run them all the time. So Jamie, you're super upbeat and energetic and obviously have a massive passion for the brand. And you haven't said one negative thing so far. And I'm not asking you to do that, but I have to think that you had some challenges along the way. Oh, and- I'm wondering how, what the biggest ones were and how you, you handle those. So I would say that it was a challenge from the beginning because we couldn't believe that people wanted what we had and we didn't have it to give it to them. And all people want to tell you is what a good problem to have. No, it's a terrible problem to have. My, my job is to take care of people and make them happy. So the fact that we run out of rum at three o'clock on Saturday and I have to put a sign on the door that says more rum in eight days uh, was devastating. I also wanted to pay the rent. So I wish we had more. Um, so that was a big challenge. You know, I think um, learning learning how to deal with that, it was just, it was, it was from day one, it was full on stress for a good year um, before we got our footing. So we had a little bit more rum. So we didn't sell it every week. Um, but that's also our greatest, 
greatest asset. There's no one that worked harder than we did that first year. There's no one that made that many batches of rum. We are about to bottle batch 211 of our dark rum. That's an insane amount of batches. Congratulations. Now, thank you. It's crazy. <laughs> and I have friends that have maybe done 20 batches of something in, in five years because yeah. they do very large batches. They run their still, they have a large quantity, they do a big bottling. We're doing it every single day. And it's only been recently that I've started to because I wasn't a business person. I was just an artist. And even in the first two or three years, I still always call myself the accidental business person. I'm just doing what makes sense to me. But in the last year or two, as I have a team, as I'm growing, as now I'm looking for where we're going, um, I started reading you know, a bit more about business and you know, podcasts that I love. I love listening to other people's stories. And you know, there's something to be said for that 10,000 hours. Uh, you, you get better by putting the time in and there's no, you don't get worse. <laughs> mm-hmm. So batch 211 yeah. sure is better and different than batch 11. And so that was huge for us. So our biggest challenge was also our greatest gift. Um, I never planned on distilling. That was going to be what Ben did. And mm-hmm. I would sell and market and maybe we would hire people, but we got overwhelmed and he had to teach me what he was doing so I could help out because, you know, you're like ships in the night. One person's working from this time to this time, going home, the other person comes and fills in. So we're both doing everything all the time in those first couple of years. And then when we started hiring people, we were able to train them. And like I said, no one knew how to make spirits, but we have a very specific way of doing what we're doing. We have a formula for it and, uh, and we all taste everything. And so it's all very important that we all have that appreciation and that point of reference. And so now when I look at it, the biggest challenge has been probably in the last year. Um, it's a, it's a totally different game than it was. And we're still super, super small, but to learn how to navigate working with distributors, shipping spirits to other States, meeting everyone's expectations, um, still trying to over deliver every time I can. I mean, if Mm -hmm. I have one mantra in life, it's, you know, under promise and over deliver, but it's also really over promise and over deliver. Like I just want to make, I want to exceed everything someone thinks. I want to blow them out of the water with our service and our experience and our product. Um, I'm pretty confident that our rum does blow people out of the water. It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a remarkable spirit and I'm super proud of it, but it's everything that goes along with that. It's me still going to liquor store tastings in Baton Rouge on a Friday night, you know, in October because yeah, of course I'm there. I'm not some brand rep. It's, it's my company. And it's important for me to share that run with them and meet those people. And so it's very rewarding for me. That's, that's where I get the connection. And I think, I think my customers do too. So it's more than just a transaction. It's really, it's really a connection. So that was probably, yeah. So, so now I know it's crazy, but so are all the other people that work here. So are, so are the 12 people that spend every day of their lives making rum here. And I think, you know, I've, I have never really worked for anyone. Um, I came out of college and I freelanced. So I've always had gigs. I'm part of that gig and hustle economy. And even when I worked in bars and restaurants, you know, and I worked for a company, you, you feel like such a free agent when you're, when you're bartending um, because you're kind of making your own money. You're not that responsible to other people. You kind of do your thing and you get out. And so I, I didn't know how to be a boss I never wanted Mm -hmm. to be anybody's boss. I never wanted to have employees. That seemed really stressful and like something that I wasn't qualified to do. And so as I started hiring people, it just felt like they were here helping us out and getting paid. Um, And I kind of just let everybody do their thing, you know, teach them how to do it, show them how to do it. No real training on the like, you know, how to be, you know, you, you want to take your lunch at your time. I mean, I'm not a micromanager just as long as everything's getting done. Yeah. 
in, in the way, you're, you're free. So I treat everyone like that. I've learned not everybody's like that. A lot of people want structure and they want to know what their expectations True. are. And, and yeah. that's been a huge challenge for me because I want to be told what to do and left alone. And now I have all of these wonderful people that work with me and they all are different and they all work different and they all thrive in, under different circumstances. So learning that has been the hardest thing. Um, so ever. now you're HR. Right? It's insane. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful because again, everyone here is super unique and really yeah, wonderful. Tell HR. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, we built a very family-like culture, which you mentioned that earlier. And that's something that I realized people always ask me, you know, uh, was it your, you know, was it your dream to start a distillery? And it wasn't my dream. It was my co-founder's dream. Mm -hmm. He was, he had the distilling knowledge and, and that yeah. was something he wanted to do for me along the way. I've realized that my dream is to build a really great company, even if it's tiny, that people who work here love it and they learn something and they feel part of something and they feel connected and they're, they're better when they leave here than when they came here in all sorts of ways. And, and it's going to come out in the bottle. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. To be honest. Absolutely. And if you People look at these out. bottles now, they used yeah. to be signed by one person. Now they're signed by every bottle is almost signed by someone different. Cause that's the person on the team that's most responsible mm -hmm. for making that product. That's cool. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a nice touch too. Yeah. And you don't think, but that does help contribute to that story you were just talking about people wondering that's mystique. And that's, mm -hmm. that's definitely uh, not to be overlooked. I think it's a really great touch. Jamie, the, um, the values that you are kind of expressing in the culture that we talked about are really cool and interesting. And I, I wonder how that applies to the partners that you reach out to, whether it be partners that you get ingredients from, or even maybe distribution. How, how does that work? Well, it's funny because kind of like everything, I, I didn't know necessarily why I was doing what I was doing when I started, you know, I just did things that felt right, worked with people that felt right. But now when I look back on it and now going into year six, I have to quantify this a lot. So I'm, I'm starting to search for new distributors in other States. And so there's a certain way that most people go about looking for a distributor. They look about their network and their bottom line and how they're going to get in placements and how aggressive they are. And I sat down and I, I was really honest with myself and I said, what do I want of my next distributor? Because we have now three distributor partners. Uh, we have a lot of liquor stores and bars that we work with. We, everyone we work with that I'm happy with and that we do the best business with are people that I really enjoy being around because they embody the values we embody. Mm -hmm. That is, we are, Lion Distilling Company makes rum, but we are first and foremost customer service. We are a people company. I love people. I love taking care of people. I love teaching people things. I love enlightening them or having them leave here with, you know, more knowledge and more just excitement than they came with. And so I realized that's how I treat my customers. That's how I treat my team. I feel like anyone who works here should be learning something and growing every day. And so I realized the next distributors we go with, I only want to work with people who have teams that love people. Because when I go to Louisiana and spend the day in the car with one of my sales reps and they love people and they get excited like I do after we make a connection, not a sale, a connection. You know, you walk into a bar and this place just loves what you're doing. They're so excited and they're already mixing up drinks for you before you even sell them a bottle of rum that's a win. I don't even care if the sale goes through. Like we had a connection. Right. So it's all about people that I connect with, make me feel good. Uh, because at the end of the day, no matter what you do for a living, you're doing that. It's your life. And for me, especially everything I have rides on this. I mean, I work seven days a week, nonstop. I mean, there's not a minute that I'm not thinking about this business. Um, so it, it should be awesome. It should only be with people that I really want to be around and that are 
doing the same kind of things that I believe in, you know, that embody those values because otherwise it's just meaningless. I, I, I would turn around and say, oh, you know, we're, our bottom line is great, but everyone we work with is a real piece of work, you know, like right. that's not good. Right. So I'd much rather be doing business with people that um, make me happy and that are, that are making, you know, some kind of impact on, on many different levels. So whether it's an organic farmer, you know, that we can connect with or, a partner, uh, we use coffee from a little roastery down the street um, in Easton. And that's actually a funny story because here we are in St. Michael's and 10 miles down the road, we have a local coffee roastery. So when we set about to do a coffee rum, of course we would do it with Rise Up Coffee Roasters because they're a beloved company. They're small, you know, they're here. Everybody knows Rise Up, but I wanted to be fair. I said, all right, let's do a test batch with their coffee. Let's not have a blind spot where we just, because I have to tell you, I, I, don't always think local is better. I mean, that's not what I'm supposed to say. It's supposed to be, oh, local, buy local, eat local, drink local. But you know what? Do that if it's also a really good product. Right. Don't have a blind spot. Don't buy my rum just because you think it's local. Buy it because it's delicious and then be happy that you're supporting a local business if that means something to you. And it does to me because we support our local little league teams and we give back to all the you know fundraisers and organizations that are happening. So there is it's important to be part of a community. Right. But, you know, local is another buzzword that I don't need to get started on. Uh, so when I looked at our local coffee roastery, I didn't want to just pick them because they were local. So we did a test batch with two other coffees, one from out of state and one from Maryland, but not, not hyper local. And at the end of the day, not only was the product better that came from Rise Up, but I kind of had decided that even if it wasn't, even if it wasn't, even if it was just maybe exactly the same as another. You couldn't differentiate between the different brands um, of coffee. If they were all good rums and it just didn't matter, their company embodied what our company embodies. They're all about people. Everyone that works there is happy to be there. And it's a family and it's a culture that I just admire. And I've often said to uh, Noah and Tim, who are the owners of Rise Up, how do you do this? Where do you find these people? And they say, Jamie, same for you. Like all the people that work at Lion are amazing and they're so excited and they love their job. And I just- I like that you made them earn it a little though. Oh yeah, and you, and absolutely. Because again, you're looking out for your brand first yeah. and foremost. And when and you, you align- the, You want the absolute best. Exactly. So you didn't just default to them. You, you know, there was a little bit of objectivity there and, because and you sourced it, it out. Exactly. Because if it's, if it's just yeah. a good quality product, but their company, uh, you know, has some blemishes on the way they treat people or they have an attitude. I mean, yeah. I, I don't want that to reflect on, on us in right. any way. So yeah, it was a, it was a decision all around. And so those are, Very those cool. are important things to me. Very cool. Yeah. All right. So again, one of the big reasons we're here and the, and the namesake of the show, right. Is, is to be utilitarian. Yes. And whoever's listening to this podcast and, and when they turn it off after they're done listening to you, we want them to be able to go wake up in the morning or step out of their car and be like, I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. These are the first three to four things I need to do. And they can be as simple as you just need to have the mentality of just falling off a cliff and not caring. 100%. Or it can be as granular as, as go follow every single local distillery uh, in Maryland. It can be big yeah, idea, yeah. small idea. But what are those three to four things that you would recommend a potential aspiring distiller creative to go out and do tomorrow? I have never been someone to sit down and plan something out. It's not in my nature you know, and there may be faults for it along the way, but if I'm going to do something, I'm going to just do it. Um, and I'm going to figure it out along the way. And I really think that that's the best way to do it is you have to throw yourself all in. I know a lot of people 
both from photography uh, and from distilling, who kind of dip their toe in the water. You know, they spend a few years on a business plan. They spend a few years, you know, maybe starting. They work part-time. They still have another job. It just doesn't work that way. Not for me, at least. I have to be all in and it might not be all in financial. It might not be all in, you know, it's, it's all in with who you are, that that's all you can think about. Because if you have to spend some of your time every day thinking about this other project, you're not giving it your all. And so you're never going to come to these moments of, of wow. And, uh, and, and getting, getting to what really you love. If you, if you're doing it part-time, even if, even if you're doing it full-time, you're doing something else full-time and sometimes economics and our life necessitates that. But I think that as soon as you can leap, you have to, you leap first, you, 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 everything I've done in my life I've done way before I was ready to do it, way before I was qualified, way before I had the money or the time or the the real credentials, um, which has made me work harder and faster to make sure that I get up to par. Um, so that's where my risk is. It's 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 so exciting, but that's also the most fun for me. I mean, just the idea of something new is is so thrilling, and it's also that time where you, I don't think you can do any wrong in the beginning. I I love talking to people who are about to start something mm-hmm. because no one expects anything from you. When we opened, people walked in here with no expectations. They were like, two crazy people so making em- run St. Michael's. Embrace that yeah. unknown, right? Because now they walk in and they're like, hey, I've read a million yeah. articles about you. You've won all these awards. Show me what you've got. Yeah. It's a lot harder. I mean, it's, it's, it's cool. It's different. It's great to have a good reputation, but you don't get that chance to just blindly blow someone away when they were expecting nothing. And so, um, so I'd say one, number one, commit, number one, commit, do it. And even if it's, you know, on any level that's right for you, you Mm -hmm. just commit to it. Um, but I'm all about all in, I'm, I'm a leap firster. Great. Um, and then whatever industry that you're in, you need to know everything about it. You, you need to know what you want to do. And sometimes you find out what what your style is because you don't want to be these other things, right? So you can narrow it down. Don't ever try to copy what anyone else is doing. Um, I've had so many people walk in here and say things like, you know what you should do? You should make a Jack Daniels honey. And I say, you know, Jack Daniels does that. (laughs) We do something different here. Uh, You should make a fireball. No fireball makes fireball. And people don't always understand that. Um, Yes. Of course, if there's something out there that you think you can improve on, that's what we're all doing. Uh, but you have to find a way to make it your own. You have to be unique because why on earth are you doing something creative if you're just doing it to copy someone else? And nothing gets me at my heart like copycats, especially in art. I take it so personally. And people always say, it's the best form of flattery for someone to try to imitate what you're doing. And it just, it, it makes me feel like someone stole my soul when they copy something that we're doing it really, I, I have a problem with it. I need to get over it. Um, but it's, it's very, it's very disturbing. If we come up with some special, unique, weird thing that we do because we do it and then someone else decides to do it. I'm like, seriously, can you just come up with your, your wow. own way? Like that's not that. my way. Yeah. Oh, because it's, again, it's the art of it. Like people all the time, they'll say, do you have a chemistry degree? I'm like, no, this is where, you know, science and art intersect in craft distilling. Well, like this is, yes, there's basic chemistry and there's no yeah. how and there's the functionality of distilling, but we wouldn't be here if you weren't doing something artistic, right? creative, and unique. Yeah. You really wouldn't be on our radar. That's why we're very selective. <laughs> well, so I think the stories that resonate with me are when people just, there was something, I guess there's the thing, whatever you're going to do, if you're going to, if you're specifically going to make spirits or you're going to make anything, it should be something that you need in your life because yeah. we all have these, these things that we're missing that we can't find. And if you make something to please yourself, 
and you happen to delight other people along the way, not only do you now have Win-win. customers, but you have friends and you have a tribe. Yeah. You have all these people and it makes sense and everything you make, they're gonna love because you were vulnerable and honest and full of integrity when you made the first thing. Yep. And, and then everything will follow. And that's where you get those advocates we were talking about exactly. earlier. Because if what you do is put yeah. out a product that you think people want and you don't really care, but you just made your widget a little bit better and cheaper than somebody else. Well, who the hell cares at the end of the day? You might sell some of those widgets, but you're certainly not going to make other things that people get excited about. So for me, when I listen, the entrepreneurs that inspire me are the ones that had a specific need in their life for something. And they made that thing for themselves and then they shared it with the world. And that's yep. brilliant. That's what we got to do. The accidental entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> truly, truly. Oh, that's my favorite. Those are my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a third? Or do we have three? I count that as, as that three. was Is three. That a third? Yeah. Do you have a Absolutely. fourth? Or I don't know. There's about think... a thousand in the rest of the podcast, but that was there the are. official ones. There are. We're going to have to work back on this one. I think you have to be an expert in your area, whatever that means to you. So I, I'm not an expert in rum, but I know different types of rum. I know rums mm-hmm. that I you know, admire. I know rums that I don't. I know what we're doing. I know where our rum falls on the spectrum of hundreds of rums out there. That's important. Now, at the same time, when I started photography, I did not want to study great photographers. I didn't want to be influenced too much by someone else's work. I didn't want to say, this is a style of photography that's very important to me. And now I'm going to even subconsciously imitate it. Cause like I just said, mm-hmm. I hate that. Yeah. Think that you have to be a little bit in a void where you're like, what do I like? So you don't want to for example, I didn't, there was no rum we were trying to recreate. There were rums we liked, but we didn't say, oh, we're going to make this but different or better. Mm-hmm. We went from scratch. Like, how can we do, how can we combine British Jamaican style of molasses pot distilled rum that people are very familiar with and wild, wacky agricole rum that's made from, you know, in the French style from raw sugar cane. And what can we take the best of both of those things and make something new? So uh, know enough about what's out there, but keep yourself enough removed so that you're not too influenced and that you don't end up just recreating. That's good advice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no one to kind of wall off and stop playing with the phone. So it's both. And it's really (laughs) tricky, right? Because if you're going to open a distillery and you spend the the next year staring at everyone else's social media, you're going to be so influenced. You're going to think that that's what you do. I mean, there's a couple of things I laugh at because we were, we were one of the first, I mean, we were the first Mm -hmm. to make rum or whiskey in Maryland in a very long time. And when we opened, there was only one other distillery in the state and then very quickly there were a few, but sometimes it feels like things that we did became just the things that you do as a distiller, whether it's how we positioned a flag on our table, because the first time we went to an event, we didn't have a tablecloth. So we put our flag down because we were in Louisiana and we thought, well, people will know we're from Maryland if we put this down. Now everybody kind of, it's a kind of a thing. Drapes, it's, it's, it, yeah. drapes the flag and it, it's cool. And I definitely didn't invent it. We did it out of necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that's a thing or maybe the way we style something or shoot something. It's just people do things that we do. And I don't know if they do it because they like what we do or if they do it because they think that's the way you do a distillery or if these 25 people in Maryland were all just so damn similar because we're crazy enough to start a distillery, we all kind of had these ideas inherently and we express them. But, but it, that's, that's an interesting thing too, is that, um, I think they're looking at you as a position leader and they're, they're taking cues. I think it's probably, I, if I had to guess without knowing, I'm definitely talking out of my ass, but I would think it's a point of reverence and and they're just, they probably see you and how you carry yourself and you carry your brand that they're learning. 
And that's just like the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fine. But that's, I would caution against that for anybody. I would say set up your tasting room the way you want a tasting room to set up and, and, you know, put your bottles on a shelf the way you want to do it. I mean, again, every single thing we've done at Lion Distilling is out of necessity. There was really nothing that I felt like I was really actively making a choice. Like, oh, this or this. And the shelf here, I put the shelf together from Sam's Club six years ago. You know, like that. Shout out Sam's Club. Yeah, right. It's just like a basic shelf. Solid shelf. Solid shelf. But that's, it was just necessity, right? And it's, it's work. (laughs) Looks good. There's no, you made it work, it's, right? It's just, it's necessity. So I always laugh because I didn't have all these options. I didn't have a lot of choices. Yeah. I yeah. think, I think that necessity is absolutely the mother of invention. And you just, God, you, you had all the choices in the world. If I had all these things to pick from, I'd probably never get anything done. That's why I think you just commit to it. Yeah. You go and you, that's another thing that I've learned. I've, it's almost like I've had these ideas and beliefs my whole life, but now I'm getting a language for them. There's a wonderful book, and I guess it's a philosophy as well, called Beautiful Constraints. And I highly recommend anyone who wants to do anything creative, read this book. Um, it's about the wonderful things that happen when we are constrained, as opposed to having all the choice in the world. You know, what pressures are you working under that are going to make your work very, very powerful. Um, and it, it talks about a few big brands and how they thrived, not because they had everything available to them, but because they had serious, serious constraints. And so if you don't have any, if you're a, uh, multi-millionaire with all the time in the world on your hands and a team of people that can do anything, maybe you need to build in some constraints, like give yourself limits. And I think that's about, that's us being rum, right? Mm So, uh, I think distillers, it's great when they make a multitude of spirits. And when we started, we made rum and we also made tiny batches of whiskey. So we were mixing together sugar some days and mashing grain the others. And that was fine. And rum and whiskey really have a wonderful synergy. They're, yeah. they're made in very much the same way using the same equipment. But about a year and a half ago, uh, I made the decision that we would stop mashing whiskey, that we would no longer make Uh, distill or lay down any whiskey at Lion Distilling because I wanted us to focus. I wanted us to be a rum distillery truly. We always have been, and we've always been like 95% rum with these little little, tiny batches of whiskey that come out. And I just felt that that was our constraint. That's who we are. We are now the only distillery in Maryland that makes rum 100% of the time. So there's a lot of rum being made in Maryland but there's no, we're the only rum distillery. In but that's helping you differentiate. Exactly. And it's important to me. Yeah. It's important that that's our spirit and yeah. that we can find, um, and do it know, the best. Yeah. Right? That, that we're an expert in that yeah. area, because even if we make rum for the next 50 years, there's people who have done it for hundreds. So you have no chance to become an expert if you're constantly diverting. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's the creative nature to want to, you know, dabble in this and dabble Gosh, in that. It really, uh, really is too. Yeah. And brands. I mean, the more focused you are, the better, I think. Mm. Um, and then your message is focused. So that was the first active decision. I feel like I've brands really go made, Brands go through know? that, you know, yeah. they, they, you know, just willing down the inventory, you get a little, and but because it spreads the storytelling thin, Right. But now that you've consolidated, you can just go deep on that one story and then you can make sure people are getting that part of it. And you don't have to worry about these sort of all offshoots. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and they're not going to steal your time. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Well, I think Jamie, that concludes the house. We have six. So I over delivered. I over delivered. I only have the right six five. <laughs> Show notes would be too long if we do more thoughts. I love it. I love it. It's a long scroll. (laughs) But uh, that being said, um, we really, really appreciate your time. And we want you to be able to um, direct people to the right places on social media and the web. So please do. 
Oh, um, I mean, pretty much if you Google Maryland rum, you'll find us, I think, these days. But uh, you can find us at liondistilling.com. Although, admittedly, I don't do much with the website. I think the most interactive thing that we use these days is Instagram. I thoroughly enjoy Instagram. I love sharing pictures of the beautiful things we're doing and the behind the scenes things we're doing. So we try to do stories um, whenever they make sense. So our handle is Lion Distilling. Uh, my handle is Blonde Booze Hound. Uh, my sister is the Tiny Booze Cat. And my entire team also has their own handles. So that's really important too. If you want to see kind of a 360 degree view of the distillery, that's really cool. you'll find us all <laughs> and, and everyone kind of it. sharing what they do here. That's yeah. great. And quick reminder, it's L-Y-O-N everyone. It is. Get after it. Not Leon, but uh, Lion Distilling, L-Y-O-N. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much. This was thoroughly enjoyable. We love seeing the operation, hearing your enthusiasm. This is going to make a great addition to the the investigations we've been doing. So thanks for your time. Of course. My pleasure. Let's uh, drink some rum. Yay. That's my hashtag. Hashtag drink more rum all the time. Got it. (laughs) Sean, I didn't know it was possible, but I have just fallen more madly and deeply in love with rum. And for myself, being a whiskey guy, Jamie has turned me back on to rum. And now through Lion Distilling's great products, we're going home with a couple bottles to do uh, what I would call a little bit more investigation, Jet. Great call. Um, Everybody, please check out the show notes at creativehowpodcast.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at creativehowpod. Hey, Jed, did you hear our kick-ass intro music? Shockingly, that's out of our technical wheelhouse here at Creative How. That type of sick sound design is a White Noise Lab original. White Noise Lab is a music composition and sound design studio that works with agencies, production companies, and brands on projects for film, broadcasts, interactive websites, corporate videos, video games, and experimental projects. The chances that that movie trailer you just saw on you know YouTube That's probably a White Noise Lab original more often than not. So whether you're looking to fulfill your sound design needs or simply need someone to collaborate with on an experimental project or maybe an experimental podcast, check out whitenoiselab.com. That's whitenoiselab.com.